everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and we have a very, very special episode today because I am joined by three of our most wonderful students who have kindly joined me in the studio. And I will explain why in a second, but first I will introduce them. We have Joanna Katsanos. Hi, Joanna. Hi. We have Juliet Cato. Hi, Juliet. Hi. And we have Jasmine Joanne. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, thanks for having us. No worries, thanks for coming in. So the reason why we have three students here today is we are talking about Juno Diaz. Now, anyone who knows anything about literature and the literary conversation at the moment knows that um, Juno Diaz has recently been in the news for some accusations that were made against him initially at the Sydney Writers' Festival at a session that I entirely coincidentally was at. Um, and you, all of you study um, Engel 203, which is our contemporary literature unit. And one of the novels or one of the novelists you study is Juno Diaz. So this all happened while you were reading him. So we thought we'd get some of your thoughts about, about this and what it's like to read Juno Diaz in this kind of Me Too environment. So anyone of you can jump in um, first. How do you feel about reading Juno Diaz now? How has this shifted the way you think of him and his work? Um, I guess maybe I'll start by saying as a bit of a disclaimer, when we read The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, even initially, it kind of made me pretty uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, I was sort of in the camp of not necessarily feeling okay with the way the misogyny of the characters is portrayed by the author. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, it was incredibly disappointing to hear these things about you know Diaz come to light and very upsetting obviously because you know these are real women whose lives have been impacted but it kind of I guess it makes me more cynical towards the novel but it wasn't a novel I was necessarily comfortable with to begin with. Um, I think I had a similar thought process to you and I think that was um, that was kind of filtered because of the Me Too movement so mm. as I was reading it and this was prior to all the accusations I did notice something that made me feel a bit uncomfortable about the text, just how misogynistic it was, but um, I kind of dismissed that aside as my own perhaps like bias towards it and like said, you know, I should look at the text for what it is and, you know, um, I don't know the context of, you know, um, America and that climate and whatnot, so I thought, you know, I should just accept the text for what it is because it doesn't necessarily equate to the reflection of the author, which obviously in this instance it kind of did, but, yeah. you know, mm. at the during the reading, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and just going off that, I think for me, coming out of it, the question was, well, what do you do with his work? Does it take away from his work? Does it mm. make him any less of an author? <clears throat> and um, that was probably the biggest struggle because sitting in a classroom, you have people with such different opinions about what you do with his text as a novel and whether or not you read it in light of the accusations. Does yeah. that have a part to play? Can you separate the author and the work? Um, and I think whilst you can't, it's probably not the best thing to just dismiss his text altogether, but better to have a conversation about it, like I guess we're doing now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the huge question, isn't it? How how far can you can you separate an author from their work, and what do you do with his work? As you said, you know, do you read it? Do you continue? Is it something that should be studied? Is it something that should fall into critical oblivion because of of the, as you say, not just the accusations against him, but also the misogyny of the text, which is something that other people have commented on as well in light of these things. So so I guess my next question would be, what do you do? Do you continue to study it? Do you think it has an important place on university curriculums? Um, I'm probably, I'm very against um, continuing putting it in the curriculum only because 
we live in a time where a person's value is worth on their economic value. Mm. So by putting it in the syllabus, by default, most students would have to buy the book, which obviously promotes his works, puts him like higher in the charts, and it has all these ripple effects. Mm. And we know clearly that economic boycotts and economic sanctions, both on a big scale and a small scale, have a huge impact. And like a really big example of that would be, you know, what happened in South Africa during the apartheid movement. Mm. And something as small as this with, you know, Diaz would allow us to make a statement. And a lot of people go, well, you know, in the past, a lot of literary authors had a history of, you know, being misogynistic or anti-Semitic like Walt Disney. Mm. However, what we want to do is we want to prevent that from happening again. Let us have great authors that do not have um, such, you know, terrible reputations or, you know, let's um, have high regard for authors that still maintain their integrity in all aspects of their life. Yeah, I, I would agree with that for those reasons, but also because I think if we keep, let's take like the university context. If we keep, you know, Diaz works in a curriculum, teachers then have an obligation really to tell the story to students, especially those who might not know about it, Mm. to bring to light the accusations. And I feel like that potentially does a disservice to the women who've come forward, who didn't come forward to bring these allegations to light so that they could then be part of an ongoing discourse about the merits of, you know, Diaz. They came forward, you know to support each other mm. for safety and for recognition of, you know, the assaults that have been alleged against him. Mm. I I don't necessarily think it's fair on those women to kind of turn him into a discourse piece. Yeah. I worry that that's making light of the potential traumas that they've been so brave as to articulate. I think we have to have this conversation now. We'd be doing these women an equal disservice to not talk about it when they've brought it up. But I don't necessarily think it's fair to kind of willingly keep him in the, in the academic canon as Mm. a study piece that kind of has inherently tied to it. This idea that we, we read, you know, Diaz and then we talk about him as a person and we talk about the things he's done to these women. I don't, Mm. I don't think that's fair to them. So, like, in terms of their story getting redragged out into the public sphere and... and yeah, yeah every- and in terms of the fact that, as unfortunate as it is, whenever this conversation is had on a big scale, there are always people who kind of don't take the perspective that what's happened to these women is that bad, who yeah. don't take the perspective that even they're entitled to come forward and sort of publicly mm. slander, for want of a better term, mm. this man. And I think, you know... People are entitled, I guess, to have that view Mm. that, you know, what happened to these women wasn't that bad. Obviously, that's not how I feel. But I don't necessarily think we should be promoting an environment where we kind of encourage that conversation and encourage that dissent. Like, Mm. this isn't a a thought exercise. These are real people's lives that have been affected. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Yeah, and um, in the discussions we had in our tutorials, this idea of um, cultural cultural promotion and cultural capitalism really came up. So not only in terms of um, the economic sort of privilege that he gets from buying his book, but um, what does it mean for the culture of literature that we create? Mm. And whilst I um, completely agree that he shouldn't be afforded more sort of privilege in light of what he's done, I don't think necessarily just cutting him out of this literary world is necessarily the answer to um, how we deal with, you know, Diaz. So uh, I think... Whilst, yes, these women have come forward, so has he, in a sense. And mm. I'm 
probably appear a little bit more sympathetic towards him and I'm not in any way condoning what he's done in the slightest but I think um, in the essay that he wrote in the New York, New York Times where he was sort of um, saying well this is what happened to me whilst it can be read as a justification or sort of a preempting of um, maybe these things coming out it's also I think reflective of the fact that he is a male and he's sort of claiming that he's been a victim too mm. And what's the sort of link between um, people who are abused and their role as abusers? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Does that come into the conversation? I think it does. And I think whilst he doesn't deserve to be um, or to hold the same title he did before, I don't think just completely removing him off the shelf is the way to go about it. I think we need to do more because he's not the first and he's definitely not the last. No, 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 no. And I'm, I'm surprised that more stories haven't really surfaced since, yeah, since exactly. that story because so many stories across all sectors are, are really surfacing. So I'm just waiting for the, the other shooter drop, you know, at this point, like who will be the next person because, of course, there are going to be more stories like this. Of course, we know that there are going to be other women. Um, yeah, I was going to say, in regards to what you were saying, Juliet, I just feel like it's a slightly, well, nowadays it's become almost an exploitive narrative to use trauma or um, mental illness to um, justify really wrong actions when there is a really big majority of people who do suffer from mental illness or from traumatic incidences and still either A, seek help or um, B, go through their daily day lives being like great human beings and still trying to find a way to um, balance that. And I find that's an issue both in mainstream media and I feel like, you know, Diaz is trying to do that um try to play he's trying to play that same idea in his work as well because yeah you're right he does admit look I, and it it's terrible what happened to him um with the abuse and whatnot um but again there are so many other people who've gone through abuse and i know people tackle abuse and that trauma in different ways but one way isn't to go and you know sexually assault women you know yeah. exactly yeah it's kind of alarming the fact that what's happened to him he's almost taking it out on other people and that mm. i think in itself is an alarming call that we should look at to me, I think something that kind of in some ways sets the Uno Diaz issue a little apart from other Me Too and Me Too adjacent allegations in the literary sphere. And, you know, there have been plenty even before the Me Too movement was kind of mm. crystallised in this form. And I think I think this thing that sets maybe Uno Diaz a little bit apart from other authors in this kind of Me Too movement is that it is contentious, the contents of his works. You know, his novels are not unrelated, I don't think, to the mm. kinds of accusations that are being levelled against him. And that, I think that that means that even though I agree we do need to keep his works kind of around and not just bury them and hope that that makes the problem go away because it, it doesn't and it won't, I do think that we need to reconsider his novels in light of his dishonesty about who he is as a person. And he used to claim that he was an advocate for women as well. So I think mm. there's also that underlying hypocrisy that Ironic. plays a role. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's given a number of interviews kind of over the years as his books have been coming out, and they've been quite influential in how people read the works. He's mm. marketed himself very strongly as a feminist, as an advocate for women, especially as an advocate for young female writers of colour. Mm. You know, he's told stories in his personal essays about wanting to advocate for the careers of young women writers and now these allegations are coming out and they directly contradict that narrative mm. you know it's they undermine who he has sold himself as as a person and also as an author and i think that we need to take a step back and consider critically how much we've let you know diaz dictate the narrative of how mm. his works are read mm. and think about 
what biases he has kind of put out there into like the world of literary reception. That's a fantastic point. I really like um, the way you've kind of drawn out his image as a writer that's very, you know, engaged with issues of race and gender and how, as you say, that doesn't necessarily align with what he is as a person and what his books do because a lot of the accusations that have come out have actually been about him responding very poorly to being questioned about these elements of, of misogyny in his works. Um, I suppose the, the, I'm not necessarily saying this, but I'm supposed the response to that would be there, if you look at the canon of English literature, there are a lot of bad people in it. Mm. You know, Chaucer may have been a rapist. Mm-hmm. Marlowe probably was a pedophile. Um, <laughs> you know, T.S. Eliot was a fascist, etc. Um, and yet we still study them and there's not that kind of call, at least um, not that I'm aware of, to kind of, you know, remove them mm-hmm. from the syllabus for, for various reasons. So what would you say to that kind of argument that, you know, these books have a place because they've had an influence um, and therefore we should study them and there's been a lot of other terrible people in the history of English literature. So what would you say? And I'm not advocating that point of view, but just as a thought exercise. Well, again, I think it goes back to this idea of we're at a time where we can make a decision now, especially with the role of social media and a lot more um, public opinion is really highly regarded nowadays in particular. Um, we have, like, we're in this position where we can help change that. So, um, of course, it doesn't take away from, you know, Diaz, you know, writing great books and whatnot. But I think in this instance... Um, again, this idea of an economic boycott, I'm quite vocal on this idea. It sounds mm. like a really strong term, but, um, you know, just taking away from that power and nowadays that, that way is through income and money yeah. that takes, that takes away his position in the Western canon and whatnot. And then we can create room for, you know, the writers that he's been advocating about the whole time, you know, um, women of color, people of color, you know, and put them in the canon as well, instead of having, you know, this one guy, why does it have to be this one particular guy? I'm mm. sure there's many amazing you know um authors who've written about like the um spanish diaspora and whatnot who mm. can be in the canon as well yeah so instead of investing everything exactly. in him look at the other kinds of writings yeah. that are coming out from that area yeah absolutely i think so mary carr made a tweet about this when the you know, Diaz allegations were coming to light and she essentially said you know i said very similar things about david foster wallace a decade ago it wasn't heard but then again david foster wallace is white and I think that that's something that we can't overlook when we have this conversation, mm. you know, especially as a white person myself, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are certainly people and institutions out there that want to come down harder on writers of colour, mm. especially writers of colour who are so vocal about the lack of diversity in the literary canon and so um, determined to kind of shake things up in that specific regard who were, you know, coming down on them is is easier than or more convenient than critiquing, you know, white favourites. Yeah. Mm. I think that's important to acknowledge, but I guess from what I've seen in the reception online and the, the online discourse, for want of a better phrase, mm. he has really let down the Latinx community, mm. especially these Latina women who he has undermined or assaulted verbally or sexually yeah so just going off that i think a big issue with the situation is diaz's response Mm. so what's he actually doing other than the sort of um foreshadowing of this potentially Mm. coming out Mm. um i think one of our classmates raised the question of did he ever apologize and from what Mm. i know not that i not that Mm. i saw so what's he doing to sort of um 
try and alleviate the suffering that he's inflicted mm. on these women? Mm. Is he um, claiming, like, yes, he's accepting that he's accountable, but that's one thing. Is he being proactive about it? Not necessarily. Mm. And yeah. I think that's quite problematic in itself in that, well, what standard do we hold these people to? What standard are we creating within the community? Mm. And I think... Um, especially in our context, people are a lot more vocal and a lot more willing to say, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. And if he's not willing to sort of um, take any, be proactive in any sort of way, then should he retain a place amongst our mm. academic discussions? Well, maybe not. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it's certainly there's been a lot of kind of deconstruction of his statement and about how he sort of seems to acknowledge what he's done but doesn't really acknowledge mm. what he's done. And as you say, there's no, not an explicit apology but he says he's trying to be better mm. so there's sort of all of these questions there about how do you redeem this behavior mm. and can you redeem mm. this behavior can you just say sorry and therefore it's gone and you know it's wiped off your slate or is it is it more complex than that do you have to you know proactively do something mm. you know what would it take to forgive Juno Diaz I suppose is is the question that I've seen mm. bandied around I'm not sure if you if you wanted to to comment on that I think ultimately um the victims in particular, it would be their call in, from mm. their own personal experience um, how reparations should be made and whatnot. Um, so, I don't know, I guess in that sense I feel like it's, um, you know, that would be their own personal choice and personal decision. But us, I guess, as, you know, the literary community and people who read his works and whatnot, um, I don't know, actually, to be honest. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit, like, how do you consider that? in light of it and i think given um how sexual assault is sort of um not stereotyped but how it's handled in our society i don't know if there is anything he could do to make mm. some people overlook what he's done exactly and and should there be anything yeah. exactly yeah. yeah it's the hard and possibly unanswerable question right is yeah. where we go from here i guess i quite strongly feel that his works just don't hold up to criticism his novels mm. particularly you know his his essay works are perhaps a different matter because I know some of them have been I'm thinking in particular of MFA VPOC have been quite influential and integral to the conversation around you know the place that writers of color need to hold in literary communities especially in academic institutions that's complicated mm -hmm. um, his novels though I just don't think that they hold up and mm. I just don't think I just think that he, he has so strongly influenced the way we read them and the way we received them. Our understanding, you know, up to halfway through this year mm. of, or a little bit less, of who he was as a person and an author and what he was endeavouring to accomplish with his writing has so strongly coloured the way we've read his works. And I think ultimately that goes, I think at the end of the day, that question of, you know, should we, how do we forgive, you know, Diaz, or should we continue reading at all? Mm. I think that ultimately goes back to viewers, like, reader discretion. Because yeah. um, I was just thinking about it. A friend of mine, um, I recommended her a book, um, and currently the, the author of it, he hasn't been charged for it, but he has, um, he's, he, there's been charges put against him, um, I think, for sexual assault, but they haven't come through whether he's guilty or not. And my friend just said, and I just said the novel itself, it, it's not anything to do with misogyny or mm. anything like that. It in itself is a good work. But my mm. friend said, I can't read it. Mm. After hearing that, she's like, I just, it will just taint my understanding of it. So I think ultimately, I guess, that experience of reading and whether you can read that book will come back to the individual mm. and whether they think that's okay and that's not. Yeah, and that opens up like really interesting questions, I think, about how we read 
and like mm. how we read the author and their work in tandem because mm. I think we do have rightly or wrongly read with the author in mind a lot and as you say mm. Joanna there is a, a tendency to use Juno Diaz as like a a key to understanding his work you know using his public statements using his sort of persona as a key to understanding his work so I suppose that I mean there are a, a decent arguments on both sides of this that maybe we should sever that link between the, the work and the and the writer or perhaps you can't and this mm. is pointing towards that inextricability of, of writer and work um, that's really kind of complex and interesting to think about because as you say you know what it how do you how do you grapple with a book that doesn't seem to be implicated in somebody's alleged crimes or exactly. alleged misdemeanors? Yeah, can you still enjoy it? I feel much the same about Aziz Ansari mm-hmm. because there were those. Um, now they weren't assault allegations; they were acting pretty poorly. But mm-hmm. he it wasn't technically assault. Mm-hmm. But I just and I really liked his work. I really loved Master of None, um, and I feel very different about it now. But at the same time, I think should I? You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. a it's a complex kind of thought um, experiment, I think. Yeah, I guess I feel very torn because mm. on the one hand, I, you know, think we should unequivocally condemn Diaz for mm. what he's done. I think we should do everything in our power to support the women who've come forward. Mm. And I personally believe that a part of that is this critical re-examination of his books, which I think hold misogynistic sentiments that we, as a literary community and the majority of literary discourse kind of, excused on a first read or read through the lens that the reading and the lens that Diaz was putting forward of this kind of, this is a critique of these masculinities that exist, but I am not a part of it. Now we know that he kind of is a part of those masculinities. (laughs) So nice get out of jail. It's a critique, it's not me. Yeah, (laughs) well, he's been sort of straight up hypocritical in a lot of his kind of extra textual works like interviews and essays. So on the one hand, you know, I feel like we have a, a clear, isolated situation here and kind of the climate wherein we can deal with it mm. because, you know, it's in the centre of the Me Too movement. It's in the public consciousness. We have the internet. We can have discussions like this and maybe we can, we as a community can shape what happens. Mm. But then at the same time, it's just probably an impossible task to sponge the literary canon clean yeah, that's of right. all of, <laughs> of the all problematic works. <laughs> yeah. We are going to have a really long list of men particularly, but not exclusively, (laughs) who have said and done bad things, and even whose works are coloured, even if we sort of say, all right, well, we take out, if your work has nothing to do with the things you did wrong in real life, then it can stay. There are are plenty of works out there in the literary canon that are appreciated that reflect on closer inspection some pretty Mm. questionable viewpoints and attitudes of the author or when you hold them in conjunction with the author's life it's like oh this is not wonderful Mm. maybe it's an impossible task and so then are we being hypocritical to say it's an impossible task but we should deal with Diaz Mm -hmm. and I just I don't quite know what (laughs) do you think um i think going back to what i said before it's like you can't just take it off the shelf and be like well that's it i did what i had to do Mm. diaz should never be seen again Mm. but um i feel like something has to be done and i don't know if i necessarily know like you said what exactly but um one of the things that we did sort of discuss was um just say that we left diaz on the unit and we were to teach diaz so um 
maybe if you went through the course and sort of looked at the ideas that come out of his text other than um, sort of those undertones of misogyny and then at the end of the course you could look through the lens of well this is what he's done in his own personal life how does that sort of shape your reading and understanding of the text and that would be maybe one way into mm. his novel that you could potentially have whether or not that's still lending him too much um, power I guess within the literary world I'm not entirely sure either mm. but um I thought that's maybe one way to sort of try and still look at his work, mm -hmm. not in light of what he's mm -hmm. been accused of. Yeah, I'm in two minds about this as well, because as you mm. said earlier, it kind of gives him cultural capital. You know, mm -hmm. the decisions that, that we make as, as um, you know, university teachers um, are important because they shape what you guys read and they mm -hmm. shape what you guys know of, of the literary canon and they, they tell you who we think is important. And sometimes we don't teach things necessarily that we love to read, but because we think that there is some kind of benefit to you guys to, to read them. Um, so on the one hand, teaching him does lend him this kind of cultural capital. But on the other hand, I wonder too, um, so that, that would make me think we should get rid of him. But then on the other hand, I think maybe it does open up a, a conversation about where we are at the moment, um, about the Me Too movement more broadly, about um, what we excuse and privilege and power. You know, I, I kind of feel quite torn about these matters. Um, I guess, like, technically, could you not have the discussions without the book? And Well, yes, quite. Yeah. Exactly. And... Mm -hmm. Also, if you really did want to like refer to text, because I do see merits in what you're saying, um, whether this is legal or not, but you can get PDF copies of a text. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and then that takes away the cultural capital and the yeah. power that um, Diaz has. Because I remember having a discussion with Julia, and Julia goes, "Well, then, what do you, what do you, what do you suggest?" What do you suggest? Yeah. And I said, "We can get PDF versions of the text if we really want." We can, to we can pirate student <laughs> make sure he doesn't get any money. See, I suppose this is the exam. This is the advantage of like studying Chaucer, who had a rape allegation against him. You know, he's he's been dead for seven hundred years. He's he's not getting any money. Yeah, <laughs> like I think yeah. it's a different in yeah. in that line. And, like taking it from personal experiences or thinking about it, like if. You also have to consider people who might be a little bit more sensitive towards the idea of um, sexual assault and sexual allegations. I, I agree, and I think when it all kind of came to light, you know, we're now a couple of months out from it, and we've, the three of us have had time to sort of think about it and mm. develop, you know, our well-thought-out opinions on it. But at the time, it made me very emotional. Mm. I I found especially those sort of the first tutorial where my class discussed it quite quite distressing. I found it really, really hard to talk about and to listen to people talking about. And, you know, I can only imagine that there are plenty there are plenty of students for whom it would be equally difficult, if not, you know, significantly more so, depending on what their backgrounds might be. Mm. You know, I don't think that, you know, we have to have hard conversations in uni mm. and teachers can do, you know, what I what I think is kind of the the right thing by their students and warn them in advance you know mm -hmm. before you come into a classroom yeah put it on the put it on the unit outline that it's the mm -hmm. it's the content for the week so that students have a heads up and they know it's going to be in their day mm. but I think you know we I, th I think you're right I think we kind of have a responsibility to our students to maybe think a bit critically about mm. whether or not we get them to read works with this kind of context around them mm. but I also think that as taking the university approach for a moment as an institution and as teachers you have an opportunity to kind of affect the cultural capital like like you've been talking about in that you can do what Diaz has purportedly been advocating for you can 
prescribe to the curriculum works by less recognized but equally or arguably more deserving mm. writers of color works that do the same things that Diaz's novels do, but, you know, without the misogyny and the allegations mm. against the authors as people. And I think that that kind of has two benefits. It diversifies the reading experience, which then in turn means that we kind of are lessening, you know, over time it will diversify the reading experience. Mm. The English students of today are hopefully, you know, the literary discourses of tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. Or of yeah. today, you know. Um, but it means that um, as a side effect, you know, Diaz stops being the only prominent or one of the most prominent, Yeah, that's yeah. you know, writers of colour in his area and it lessens the kind of, the impact of that argument that we can't get rid of Uno Diaz because he's so important mm. to his community. He's, you know, one of the most recognised Dominican writers. Mm. Let's let's promote other Dominican writers so that we don't need yeah. this one. Yeah, and these conversations also strike me as very new because, you know, mm. you guys probably look at me and see an old person. But <laughs> I am not actually that much older than you. And I remember being um, an undergraduate and having units that were very, very heavily dominated by white people. In fact, mo you know, I don't think I read many, if any, people of colour across any of my subjects. And certainly I had units where there were all white men, not one woman. And that wasn't a, that wasn't a conscious choice. Like, I don't think my lecturers were sitting there going, I hate women, I hate people of colour, I won't teach <laughs> them. But it's, we, we tend to just perpetuate what we're taught. Mm. And you know, we, we think, okay, well, I'm writing an, an 18th century unit. What did I do in my mm. 18th century unit? And they tend to, you know, teach to that. Um, nobody in my day had these conversations, at least not mm. that I was aware of, and I was pretty involved, <laughs> um, as you can probably tell. Um, it, I think it's wonderful that you're having these conversations. I think it's such a a real kind of positive step for the future, and as you say, that will alleviate the kind of influence that that Diaz has and that goes to your point about there must be other people out there yeah. writing from the um from the Spanish diaspora who can fill that place exactly. left by Diaz I was mm. wondering if you would you know is that something you think about like who you're reading you know what sort of proportion of women and people of color are on your reading list is that something you think about a lot yeah for sure like um mm. for me studying Adiche was a really great experience because mm. I think yeah. she is a very phenomenal woman mm. especially given her background and um mm. how far she's come and how much she has to say so um yeah reading Adiche for me was a was a really great experience because um I'm very much into the stuff that she talks about like in her TED talks and all the stuff mm. that she writes and I think that um she leads her life to how she wants to lead it and not in light of the fact that, yes, she's a minority and she has to mm. constantly play on the fact that she's a minority. And um... Yeah, no, I think there are people out there, and they are vocal on the internet, who think that this kind of, this kind of discussion is, like, PC and a bit rubbish. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, slotting women into your... Yeah. And, and minorities into your literary courses just for the sake of it, quote-unquote. Yeah. Um, We're looking for, quote-unquote, merit. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And I think, to be frank, are we at the point in the podcast when I can be really blunt? Yeah, of course. You can be um, blunt from the beginning. Fantastic. I think that's, like, pretty garbage, yeah. honestly, because, yeah. you know, there are plenty of incredible authors out there, you know, mm. from diverse backgrounds, and I think it's a bit 
it's a bit of an oversimplification of the situation to suggest that all the writers who have risen to prominence have risen to over the course of history, especially yeah. in earlier centuries, have risen to prominence solely for their merit and not because of who they were. And that there were you know, no women or no people of colour who had who had commensurate merit, but mm. who never got to you know yeah. be amplified. Well, a lot of them were in a position of privilege or had connections. I mean, if you mm. look at the Bloomsbury Group, they all knew each other and they all helped <laughs> each other. Like, yeah. if you have yeah. that kind of environment, it's very easy to excel. Do you know what I mean? But not not what you know it's who yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, <laughs> the idea that the literary canon to this point has emerged organically in some as mm. like the natural best pieces to rise to the top is like also a bit rubbish yeah that's, that's not how it happened well and um, that and that takes it back to you know what we teach because yeah everything a, a, yeah a lot of who we teach who we research tends to amplify and and retain those voices and their influence mm. yeah it's all you know the choices made by people who are consumers and then people who are educators and people who are marketers over the course of you know years and centuries that's that's the works that are remembered so i think there's nothing you know, there's nothing silly in us making these choices quite concertedly. And I think for minorities and for marginalised people, it's just really important that we make, mm. you know, good representative choices. And I think there's also a danger too in, in having the one minority. You know what I mean? Mm. Because that, that sort of goes to what we've been saying about Diaz's position, mm. right? And people have latched onto him as for various reasons, as, um, you know, because he does advocate for, you know, he has advocated in the past for minority voices and so forth. When you make him that powerful and you latch all of these ideas onto him, mm. it kind of gives people an excuse to, to rush in and go, well, this is what happens. <laughs> you amplify minority voices, right? That they they aren't perfect, and then you turn on them. Yeah, you know. and it becomes a it becomes a bludgeon for other kind of minority voices. You know, when are, when well, are you going to 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 stuff up like Diaz? Well, I think it's the idea of not homogenizing yeah. the minorities mm -hmm. into one group, which is like kind of what you were getting like saying. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the issue is. Like, you get one, and they become the symbol for, for example, mm -hmm. the Latin American people, or for you know immigrants in general, or whatnot. And that's where that issue is mm. um, just mm. in response yeah. to that, yeah. And the minority is flawed. You get that sort of um, propaganda around it yeah. that um, it's because they're, minor they're the minority that they may act like that, going back to what you said, and they yeah. might pin him, well, he's not, you know, a white male. He shouldn't get away with this. Mm. He's been given an opportunity, a privilege as such, to be put in this position, and he acted like that. And that's the risk, I think, with, um, with Diaz there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in representation discourse kind of both within texts and then also within communities. Yeah, I think that that's really important when we talk about representation, what you guys have been saying, the idea that if you only have one, whatever group it is you're trying to represent, you know, woman or person of colour or, you know, Dominican American, then the onus falls on them to be everything and no one can be. And, you know, in this specific situation, I don't think we should be cutting Diaz any slack because yeah. what he's done is objectively mm. reprehensible. But moving forward, I think we we definitely need to think about how we, you know, just having one of such and such group that we kind of throw in tokenistically, even if it's well-intentioned, is just never going to be enough because mm. that's that's not a representative sample failed statistics but that's that's yeah. definitely not a good <laughs> and it puts a lot of burden yeah on that minority to be the kind of you know the mm. people talk about the model minority mm -hmm. right the, the minority who acts the way we would like 
or, or not we particularly, yeah. but the broader kind of social world would like that minority to be, you know, so you, you get um, a lot of kind of burden around what they write and how they represent their community. And I think if you have a broader range of voices, you don't get that burden because it's yeah. just, you know, you can be, as you say, um, Jasmine, there's a, a diversity of experiences. Yeah. It's not about, you know, one person embodying everything that that minority should be or has to be. Mm. And then maybe the best way to go would be to replace it, as like you said, with others who have something valuable mm. to say, maybe even more valuable than he mm. does. Mm. Without the sideline of misogyny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, his Dominican diaspora novel, there are, there are others like it. There are others like it written by women who have come forward and said, I was a young, when I was a young writer, Diaz, you know, undermined me or Diaz mm. verbally assaulted me. Maybe... Maybe amplify those voices. Yeah, yeah. The, the, some of the women who have come forward are, you know, talented and applauded writers in their own, mm. in their own right. And so maybe, I don't know, but maybe one of the things we can do to help this situation moving forward with a unit specifically like this one that yeah. we all studied is replace Diaz with them. Yeah, well, that's right. And I, I was reading an article, yeah, a review in the Saturday paper of Roxane Gay's um, Book of Short Stories, and um, this was on Saturday, and they suggested that since, you know, Diaz is so problematic now, maybe we should replace, you know, Diaz with Roxane Gay, who is writing from a, a Haitian experience, right? So maybe that, you know, replace his position with other people who are writing in the same kind of um, way. Before we wrap up, I wanted to know from you guys, because Me Too is very new. It's something that um, has happened quite recently. I wonder if this would have received the same kind of attention even 10 years ago, even five years ago, because certainly, as Mary Carr pointed out, as you raised, Joanna, um, there were allegations against people like David Foster Wallace that were just ignored. Whether that's a matter of a racial difference, that's another question. Do you guys see this is a real kind of turning point, the Me Too movement. Do you think it's going to be something that has a kind of long-lasting influence on the way we relate um, and think about gender? Um, is it a flash in the pan? Is it a trend? Um, I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying a lot of people would argue that it is. Um, I guess, are you hopeful? Um, I think as long as we build momentum on it, mm. it can continue and it can help create, initiate change. Um, so... But that what what that requires is impact and change. So the reason why you know the Me Too movement had such changes because people began to speak out about their experiences. You know everything about Harvey Weinstein came out, um, all the NDAs and whatnot. Um, so in light with you know Diaz and you know literature, as long as we make impacts and change, okay, how do we understand the literary world? How do we respond to that? Then there's a potential for great change. Um, but going back to the question, would this have had as great of an impact ten years ago? I would say probably not. Again, mm -hmm. I think the Me Too movement was a really big change and it helped, and I said at the beginning, filtered my understanding when I originally read um, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. In light of that, when I read it, I noticed how, probably more how misogynistic it was. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think if we build on it, then it can really create change. Mm. Yeah, going off that, I, I don't think it is a trend this mm. time. So I think I've been lucky enough to grow up in a context where people are very outspoken mm -hmm. and very willing to um, put forward what they think. And I think if that we continue to have conversations like these and be in, especially um, in the university context, to have our educators encourage us to have these conversations is really important because mm -hmm. um, it brings to surface what the issue is and then we discuss how do we move forward. So as long as we have people who are willing to do that and to be active in that, mm -hmm. I think it's something that can 
potentially have a very big impact. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, certainly, I think your generation is just wonderful because <laughs> we weren't having these discussions when I was an undergrad. Mm. And I don't know if that was our educator's fault or if it was our fault, really. Mm. Um, I think there was a lack of, um, I don't know, momentum, a lack of willingness to have these conversations that I, I really see now all the time. And I think it's wonderful. I also think, you know, social media is a big blessing and a big curse mm. when it comes to this. I think the hopefully the social consensus on how much it matters to listen to women who have experienced these things is changing for the better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, social media certainly facilitates these discussions in a way that just wasn't feasible, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, these allegations came to light primarily on Twitter. You know, mm. that's a medium that when it first when it first came onto the scene, people I don't think ever really anticipated that Twitter would be the voice of, you know, breaking social discourse, but mm. it's become that. And I think it's a matter of us using these social media tools in ways that allow people to speak up without having to be supported by an institution to do so, you know? Yeah, that's a great point because it does allow that individual voice to be heard and, and amplified without, as you say, a kind of structural force behind it. Yeah, you know, social media can kind of be a bit of a cesspool sometimes, but it <laughs> yeah. has allowed these women to come forward in their own words and tell their their experiences about Diaz without needing to get it published yeah. by a, you know, a publisher, mm -hmm. sort of. And how would that happen 15 years ago? Right? Yeah, you know, and... I don't know. You probably wouldn't. And I think the timing is right, because I think we have to look at this in light of the culture in which we live in. Um, so in Australia, I think, and I could be completely wrong, but um, even though the Australian Human Rights Commission recently said the amount of sexual assault on university campuses is has mm -hmm. increased significantly, particularly universities, um, especially in America, the amount of sexual assault that happens in universities is really large. I had a friend that just came back from exchange, and they have their own police unit on campus that when they hear... Um, stuff about sexual assault, a lot of it gets dismissed. And they're, mm. they're told to first go to those police before going to the yeah. um, main suburban police or whatnot. And I think in light with what happened with Una Diaz, I think we have to take into consideration um, this is a big deal because it comes at a time where people are voicing out that, hey, these things are happening mm. and they're happening a lot more frequently than we thought. And I think we do need to create that change. And I think, yeah. And there's a lot more interrogation of how institutions have failed. Exactly, yeah. You know, you look at, like, the um, responses to child sexual abuse in Australia, the Royal Commission, that was all about institutions facilitating the ongoing abuse mm. um, of, of very young people. And we, we like to think institutions protect us, but in many cases they fail us. And I think there is more knowledge and awareness of that in recent yeah. years. Yeah, for sure. And I think the fact that um, Diaz is very much in a position of power now, mm. given his social status, the fact that these women um, are able to come out, I think is a very powerful thing yeah. in itself. And I think we should do what we can to support them, like yeah. what you were saying before. 100%. Yeah, I think that's a lovely place to end. Um, thank you so much, all three of you, Joanna, Juliet, and Jasmine, the three Js who <laughs> joined me today. Thank you so much. You give me so much hope for the future. I think that if everyone was like you, you would be fine. Thank you oh, for having thank us. You. <laughs> oh, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. So this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. And please send all of your um, rapturous praise for our students our way because we will pass it on. Um, thanks. We'll see you again in about a week. Bye.